We continue on in our study of Ecclesiastes during the season of Lent. Just two more sermons here before Easter Sunday. And our our text this morning comes uh, from chapter 7, the second half of chapter 7. So hear God's word to us from Ecclesiastes verses 11 through 28. Wisdom is good with an inheritance an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can straighten what he has made crooked. In the days of prosperity be joyful, and in the days of adversity consider, God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is righteousness. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall overcome both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does not, that does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourselves have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and to the scheme of things and to know the wickedness and folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and net and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul sought repeatedly, but I have not found. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask that you meet us in your word tonight, um, which is this evening, or this morning, rather, which is a, which is a, a very strange word to us, um, difficult to understand at points, very counterintuitive. Help us to know true wisdom and true righteousness, and help us to see how you are the God that is, um, that is our wisdom, and that you, even though your ways are mysterious and inscrutable, through the person of Jesus, you have revealed yourself to us as, as a loving Father. So we pray that that picture would come true to us and we would see that clearly this morning through your word in Jesus' name. The mark of a truly wise man or woman is that they know they should not try to be too wise. This is true also for the righteous person. A truly righteous person doesn't try to be too righteous. As the teacher says, be not overly righteous. 
and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from the, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. What does the teacher mean by not being overly righteous or overly wise? This seems to be a contradictory kind of thinking here. Is he advocating for a kind of moral or mental mediocrity? Is he so cynical about life that he's saying, just chill out and take it easy. At the end of the day, we all die. We all go to dust. Life is going to disappoint you. It's going to break your heart. In the, everything, in the end, everything is lost, so just take it easy. You need to work hard enough so <clears throat> you don't starve, but don't work too hard, right? And you need to think hard enough so you don't make a complete mess of your life, but don't, don't think too hard. And you need to be a good enough person so that people don't think you're a jerk, but don't spend too much time trying to be good. Too good. Just enjoy life. Have some fun along the way. Don't take yourself so seriously. A little bit of mediocrity goes a long way. Is that, is that what he's saying? <laughs> that is a lifestyle, by the way. <laughs> I think you find it in the Big Lebowski, the dude. That's his <laughs> philosophy of life. This isn't exactly what the teacher has in mind. He doesn't tell us not to be overly wise and overly righteous because life is meaningless and empty. Rather, he wants to confront us with the limits of righteousness, the limits of wisdom, in a world that is marked by hevel. Remember that word, hevel. Vanity is the word that is most often translated. It's, it's, it's the, the temporariness of life. It's the, dust, it's the smokiness. It's nothing's permanent. Nothing's temporary. Things sort of vanish. There are limits to wisdom and righteousness in a world marked by hevel, vanity, absurdity. It's not the same as meaninglessness and emptiness. Neither wisdom nor righteousness provide us with a fail-safe way of coping with life and its frustrations and the ultimacy of death. And what the teacher discerns is that those who are excessively wise, excessively righteous, what they do is they manifest a desire to exercise a degree of control over their lives that refuses to accept their limits as a creature. That's, that's what he's getting at, is that when we seek to be overly wise and overly righteous, what we're trying to do is control our world. And in doing that, what we do is we end up violating what it means to be a creature and the limits of creaturehood. It's very instinctual for us to want to be in control of our lives, to protect ourselves, to, to avoid harm and loss and death. But what the teacher sees is there is a potential for a kind of unhealthy extremism of our personalities, right? We want to be really smart and educated and wise, and it's a way of having power and control in our lives for understanding the world. We try to be really good and really moral and do the right thing. And it's a way that, again, I can be in control. I can protect myself from a chaotic world. And in both cases, 
excessive righteousness, excessive wisdom. It's a way of, of leveraging ourselves in the world, of having maximum advantage, right? And what the teacher wants to warn us against is that the extreme pursuit of wisdom and righteousness can actually lead to the opposite effect, which is self-destruction. Again, this is very like, what? <laughs> the teacher is a way of the very subtle ways in which the sinful human heart can take something like righteousness and wisdom and turn it into a weapon. A weapon that destroys ourselves and destroys those around us. And so true wisdom is learning to accept the limits of what it means to be a creature, which means learning to accept the fact that wisdom will only take you so far. Understanding of the world will only take you so far. That true righteousness is actually, quite paradoxically, learning to accept the reality that you are a sinner and that you can actually never be perfectly righteous. See, true righteousness is knowing that you can't be perfectly righteous. This is a gospel understanding of righteousness that we'll come back to. See, we are sinners, and no matter how far we fight against sin and seek to overcome it, it doesn't change the fact that we're still sinners. Now, the question is, how do we, how do we do this, right? How do we pursue wisdom and righteousness without being excessively wise and excessively righteous? Is it kind of like a mental moral balancing act on a tightrope? Do we deliberately just sin in certain ways or make foolish decision here just to kind of balance the scale of things? That's, again, not exactly what the teacher has in mind. It's about having the right reference point. And the reference point for the teacher is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, traditionally, just to remind you in the book of Proverbs, is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is how we avoid becoming excessively righteous and excessively wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the knowledge that God is God and I am not. It's the understanding that God is the absolute center of the universe, that God defines reality, that his word defines what is real and what is true, not my word. The fear of the Lord is to know God as God and myself as a creature. That's the kind of baseline in the book of Proverbs. But the teacher adds an additional layer of meaning onto the traditional understanding of the fear of the Lord. According to the teacher, we are always dealing with God and all the events of our lives. Always. You are always in the presence of God and everything that happens to you in one way or another is the Lord relating to you and you relating to the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, in particular for the teacher, is the utter mystery and incomprehensibility of God's ways in the world and how that impacts our lives personally. Through all the events of our lives, we live out before the presence of the Lord, and yet we cannot figure out and we cannot find out what the Lord is doing. In chapter 3, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people might fear before him. In our chapter, verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that a man might not find out anything that will be after him. For the teacher, everything that happens to us comes from the hand of the Lord, the good things, the bad things, the crooked things. 
in a way so that we don't understand them. And we don't understand the events of our lives, and they're hard, and sometimes we kick hard against them. But the fear of the Lord is learning to accept the life that God has given us. We receive the good things with joy and gratitude, and we accept the bad things with humility, yet without becoming bitter and broken by them. And the excessive pursuit of wisdom and righteousness, in a sense, as the teacher sees it, is a refusal to accept the world as it confronts us. Again, we, we throw ourselves into righteous endeavors and wisdom in order to overcome those things. It's worth spending some time here. To, I know this is still probably like, okay, <laughs> tell me more. Um, it's worth spending some time exploring here the reasons that the teacher gives us for the limits of reason and righteousness. Um, this is, I think, helpful to understand what he's getting at. And the fundamental insight that the teacher has about the limits of wisdom and righteousness has to do with what he sees to be the breakdown in the cosmos of the law of retribution. Now, we, we, we think of the law of retribution as, you know, you do the crime, you do the time, right? You do something wrong, you get punished. But the law of retribution in the book of Proverbs uh, has to do with a positive and a negative. If you live wisely and you live righteously, you can expect to enjoy blessing and goodness and faithfulness in the land. If you live foolishly and wickedly, you should expect nothing less than suffering, harm, and destruction. That's the law of retribution, right? You work hard, you do good, you get rewarded. You do bad, you get punished. This is, this is the baseline in the book of Proverbs that all advice is given, right? It's a law of the universe, that those who live according to the grain of the universe and its moral design will be rewarded, and those who contradict it and live against it will suffer harm. The proverb says, for the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it, right? So it's a very symmetrical moral world. The specific, um, but... The teacher sees something here. He sees the breakdown of this law of retribution. Yes, it holds true a great deal of the time, maybe even most of the time, but there is times when it does not. And this is what he says in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words... There is a glitch in the system. The righteous suffer and the wicked flourish. How can this be? The moral cause and effect system of the universe seems to be out of alignment. It's not in sync. Things don't work the way we expect them to. And it is precisely after this observation that the teacher then goes on to make the observation in warning against being excessively righteous and excessively wise. And the reason why is because when we encounter the breakdown of the law of retribution in life, when our good works and our hard work and righteousness doesn't pay off, when our efforts at understanding the world don't actually produce understanding, our tendency and temptation is actually to double down even harder on them. To think, there's a righteousness that I haven't achieved yet that will help me get over the hump. There's an understanding that I don't have yet that can make sense of these things to me, that can explain it all. 
There's something that I can acquire through righteousness or wisdom that will give me leverage over against the world that will hopefully make me untouchable, that I won't be harmed. And what the teacher says is you don't see that the world is profoundly broken and you are too. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to do because you don't work the way you're supposed to. Verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I should confess that I am quite prone to being excessively wise. <laughs> yeah, you guys are. <laughs> uh, that wasn't meant to be a joke, but I'm glad that it was humorous. It just means that I'm making an observation that confirms with your reality of me. I love to think, I love to read. I am driven by a deep desire to understand, to know the world. Um, I can sit in my basement office reading theology and philosophy books hours on end with, without blinking, days upon days. One of my favorite times of life was writing my dissertation. Eight to 10 hours a day in my basement office. Nick knows what I'm talking about. It was glorious. <laughs> However, I know that there have been periods of my life in which my passion to learn has bordered on unhealthy obsession. And the way it becomes manifest in my life is an orientation to life as something that could be conquered through intelligence and understanding and learning. And when this happens, what ends up happening is that people become abstractions and ideas to figure out, riddles to solve rather than the really complex human beings that defy easy categorization and understanding. One of the ways it manifests itself is an orientation to life and the problems and challenges of life as intellectual problems that have intellectual answers. That when I'm confronted with a, a situation or even suffering itself, that there's gotta be a way I can think myself out of this. But the reality is this, you can't think your way through life. This is, I've learned this the hard way, and I have to keep learning it again and again. You can't think your way out of, through life and out of life. You can't think your way through suffering. You can't think your way out of pain. You can't think your way out of relational problems. No matter how hard you might break a situation down mentally to analyze it and understand it and put it back together, that will not necessarily help you. There is no explanation for many of the things that we go through in life. There's no answers. And this is really hard for certain personalities like myself because we, we desire a theory that explains everything and we think that if we can just learn enough, read enough books, think enough, then we can find it and then we can be at peace and then we can find comfort. And this is, this is very much the teacher's mentality and he, he kind of just shares with us he says, I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. You get the sense of this man who's just throwing everything, all his mental resources and energy to try to understand the world. And it's like the harder he tries, the further away it gets from him. See, there is a temptation, I think, to believe that if we are wise enough, if we think enough, if we plan enough, 
we can avoid the ordinary problems that beset normal human beings and people, the ordinary frustrations of life. But what the teacher knows is, and this is taught to him by wisdom, it runs aground every single time, again and again and again, and it runs aground in the same shoals. It is, runs aground on the human condition. Yes, wisdom is good. In chapter 9, verse 18, he says, Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom is a source of power, but it cannot predict nor can it prevent sinners. <laughs> it can't prevent sin from happening. Again, in our verse, this is the connection here. It's quite subtle. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man. More than 10 rulers who are in a city. That sounds pretty great, right? And then right afterwards, and yet, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. What makes the wise man powerful? <laughs> in a way, he knows the world is going to get screwed up and that somebody's going to sin and blow things up. The unpredictability of sinners and their propensity, our propensity, to through, screw things up wrecks all systems. It wrecks all systems. You can have the best laid plans. You can have the tightest system. The, all it takes is one sinner to blow it up. And nine times out of the ten, the sinner that's going to blow it up is you. <laughs> right? See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The limits of wisdom in life is found in the, in the very imperfectibility of the human condition. It cannot be predicted. It cannot be controlled. Wise people still sin. So in the wisdom tradition, being wise and being righteous are nearly equivalent to one another. The wise person lives righteously, and the righteous person lives wisely. But the teacher is, is right to distinguish these in our experience. They're not, you know, collapse them into one. They're very closely related to one another. But what does it mean exactly to be excessively righteous? This, I think, is a little bit harder for us to grasp than being excessively wise. Because if, if we truly are sinners, as I've been saying we are, why wouldn't we want more righteousness? Why would less righteousness be better than more righteousness, right? Now, some have interpreted what the teacher says here to be a reference to uh, hypocrisy, right? That the overly righteous person he has in mind here is the hypocrite, the person who says they're righteous but actually really isn't righteous. But this is not what he means. The overly righteous person is one whose righteousness makes them presumptuous. The overly righteous person is one who makes them presumptuous about how the world should work based upon their right living. But I'm going to say that again because this is a very subtle point, but I think it's very important. The overly righteous person is a person who is presumptuous about how the world should work in the light of how well they live. Right? We become excessively righteous when we think that the world should correspond to the way we seek to live rightly in it, right? So being over, the best way to, probably the easiest way to understand this is it's kind of what we mean by the word self-righteous. But even this word has a little bit too negative a connotation. 
But to be a self-righteous person is not to be a hypocrite or to be a bad person. To be a self-righteous person is to have a very strong sense of one's own moral high ground in relationship to the world and others. This is not necessarily an evil, bad thing. It's quite instinctual if you seek righteousness. And see, we all act um, excessively righteous when we seek to leverage our moral goodness as a kind of bargaining power and advantage in the world, especially in relationship to other people. We become excessively righteous when we seek to leverage our moral goodness as a kind of bargaining power and advantage as we relate to other people. And how this happens, I think, is very, very subtle. We almost never see it happening. And that's the thing about excessive righteousness that's so dangerous about it, is it makes you blind to yourself. Because you assume that your intentions are pure and your actions are good, and when somebody points out you've done something wrong, you simply do not believe it. Right? Now, perhaps the best example of being an overly righteous person is the elder brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, or the prodigal sons, that, that was our sacred reading. There are two sons. Remember the story. There are two sons in the father's household, the younger son and the older son. The younger son rebels. He says, I don't want to be a part of the household. Give me my inheritance. I'm going to take it. He takes it. He spends it. He wastes it. He wrecks his life. He's poor and destitute. He comes back to the father, hat in hand, and what happens? Before he can even reach the gate, the father has meets him, hugs him, forgives him, puts a cloak on him, and wants to have a big party to celebrate his coming back. How does the older brother respond to this? Is he happy? No, he is not happy. <laughs> Jesus, uh, as Jesus tells the story, he says this. He was angry. He was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who had devoured your, prosper- your property with prostitutes and you killed, the, you killed the fatted calf for him, you threw a party. Now, if we're being really honest... The older brother's response makes perfect sense. He followed the rules his whole life. He served the father. He kept the commands. And his brother did not. And he made a wreck of his life. And he wasted the father's inheritance. And he returns as a a failure. And now he's being celebrated. This is completely unjust and unfair. Why should he have now, again, the same status in the household as the older brother who never left and never did anything bad, right? You can imagine the the conversation in the older brother's mind, right? I always honored the father. I never left. I always did the right thing. And now I'm in a position where my my righteousness and the things I did, I mean, it, it it doesn't give me any advantage or leverage. It makes no difference. Why did I work so hard? Why do I even bother, right? See, this is the kind of thinking, I think, the, the older brother thinking that, that infects all of us, that affects any of us that really try hard to live obediently and to follow the Lord. And what the deeper issue is, is this. And this is what the elder brother misses. This is what the excessively righteous person misses. 
according to both the teacher and to Jesus, when we're excessively righteous, the excessively righteous person has extreme difficulty accepting the fact that they themselves are sinners. That's the hardest thing when you're excessively righteous. And oh, now, yes, yes, we might say as excessively righteous people, yes, yes, I know I'm a sinner. To err is human. We're all sinners. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I always served you and I always kept your commands. Right? See, we affirm our sinfulness, yeah, theoretically. See, the excessively righteous person is a theoretical sinner, but not an actual sinner. We accept in theory that we sin, but in actual reality, when we are confronted with our sin or with the potential reality that we did sin, it is very, very difficult for us to accept this because we try so hard to do the right thing, right? We genuinely want to be righteous. We don't want to sin. And the harder we fight against sin in our life, the more prone we are again to resist when other people confront us with our sin. And I, I just want to make a point here. I mean, this is where things become really destructive, potentially, because it is possible in our excessive righteousness, in our moment, when, when our righteous, we can use our righteousness and our piety as a weapon to bludgeon others who challenge us. And I think this is a danger in any church community, any spiritual community that is, is earnestly seeking the Lord and seeking to do and pursue God's righteousness. There's always a temptation to leverage our piety, our love for God, our devotion, our passionate spirituality over against those who would challenge us. And I think this is especially true for spiritual leaders. But the truly righteous person, as opposed to the excessively righteous person, is one that knows themselves as actual sinners, not just theoretical sinners, but actual sinners. They are willing to let themselves be questioned by others and to question themselves, even when their whole heart's desire and intention is to do the right thing and to do good. They know that righteousness is out of reach. And so they're not surprised when they fail and somebody points it out. And as hard as it is to hear that they have failed, they humbly receive it because they know that deep down they are actual sinners. See, when we're excessively righteous, it is self-blinding. It's self-blinding. We don't see ourselves as we truly are. Martin Luther in, has a lovely phrase to describe the picture of the human person that the teacher, I think, captures quite nicely through wisdom categories here. He describes our, our nature as simultaneously sinner and saint. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, just and unjust. Sinner and just. And this is a very kind of complex understanding of the person. But it's, it's what the teacher means when he says, surely there is not a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins. See, he, said, he affirms that there are righteous people, that you can be righteous and not do good and never sin. This is very difficult self-knowledge to maintain at the same time. It's very hard to hold together and internalize in our own identity the fact that on the one hand, we are terrible sinners, and on the other hand, we can be morally upright. 
And we tend to fall in, in, in a couple different, you know, like either you fall and you tend to just see yourself as a terrible sinner always failing all the time, or you tend to think, well, you know, I screw up once in a while, but overall I'm a pretty good person and I'm pretty upright. But what's very hard to hold together is this idea that, you know what, I can be morally upright and terribly sinful. But this is what it means. This is what the gospel reveals to us about who we are. See, the teacher's portrait of God and his understanding of the fear of the Lord is not a lot of help in holding together these two truths. Not a lot of help. He presents us with a very high view of God. But this is a God that feels a little bit cold, a little distant, a little perhaps mercurial. We don't know what his intentions are towards us. This is a God we know that is acting behind the curtain of history, but we don't know how and why he pulls the levers he pulls. This is not a God we really have a personal relationship with. We can't really look at our lives and try to scan them and see and come to the conclusion whether this God loves us or not and what he thinks about us. But Jesus, the teacher, reveals to us another way, another picture of God. He doesn't cancel out. He doesn't cancel out what the, what the teacher in Ecclesiastes teaches us about the fear of the Lord and the, the incomprehensibility of God. But he, get, he adds, he opens the picture a bit for us. For Jesus, it's not the fear of the Lord. It is the love of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord says, God is God and I am his creature. The love of the Lord teaches me that God is Father and that I'm his beloved son or daughter. See, the fear of the Lord teaches me that God is God and I am a creature, but the love of the Lord teaches me that God is Father and that I am a child. Jesus reveals to us the face of God as a loving Father. In his life is mirrored to us the person of God as tender, loving, compassionate father, the father that we encounter in that parable. This is the picture that we find of God in that story of the two brothers. And the only way for us to hold together these difficult truths that I'm a terrible sinner, <laughs> and yet I can be morally upright, is to know God not just as the, the creator behind the scenes moving things in history, but to know him as father, and then myself as a child. See, friends, the gospel tells us that we are more sinful and messed up than we can possibly imagine. We should never underestimate our ability to screw things up. And yet at the same time that we are more beloved and cherished by the father than we could bear, imagine, or dream. I'm more screwed up and sinful than I dare imagine, but I'm more loved and beloved by the Father. These are difficult truths to hold together, and yet they're both true at the same time. God's grace is for prodigals, for younger sons and daughters. No sin, no failure can keep you out of the household because what got you in the household was not your performance. It was that you became an adopted son or daughter. And for elder brothers and elder sisters, the Father delights in you, not because you always served him and kept his commands. The Father delights in you because you're a son or a daughter. You belong not because 
You keep the rules. You do the right thing. You belong simply because he loves you. You don't have to earn your spot in the household. So younger brothers and younger sisters and elder brothers and elder sisters know that in Jesus Christ, you have been made part of God's household. You are part of the Father's household. And he says the same thing to you as he says to Jesus. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would learn the love of the Lord, which is not our love for you, Lord, but your love for us, that, that you are a father and we are your children. This is the beginning of knowledge. This is the beginning of wisdom in the Christian life. May we, uh, we soak it up deep in our hearts and our souls. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.